Hello and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, the Season 3 podcast, for our discussion of parts 17 and 18 of the show. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch and to the Bureau, gents. To the Bureau. That's a very to the bureau. fine glass of Bordeaux you've just poured there. Uh, Tempranillo, actually, because, you know, come on, Gordon, like, Bordeaux's are very heavy and I need to feel some sunlight in my bones because I'm young. Joining us for this week is author David Lynch Scholar, host, producer and film reviewer of Triple R radio show Plato's Cave and film festival programmer Thomas Caldwell. Hello, thank you for having me here. <gasps> thank you very much for joining us. I just realised this building that we're recording in is the building I was originally in when I first heard Twin, Twin Peaks discussed academically. <gasps> okay. Yeah, in a, in a politi- it wasn't even a cinema studies class. It was a politics lecture I was attending about, about the politics of the media and we had a guest lecturer looking at fictional narrative and that's the first time I heard Twin Peaks discussed with any intelligence and it kind of blew my mind. It had a rather major impact on my obsession throughout university <laughs> and beyond. Wow, how interesting that we loop time to come back here <laughs> and to talk about Twin Peaks yeah. in a very yes, academic no. sense again. It, it's all very serendipitous because I, I have been waiting for this particular episode because no offence to all of the other wonderful guests that we have had on this podcast, but Thomas is far and away the biggest David Lynch nerd that I know. Oh, that's a bold call. Well, that's yeah. hard call. Thank you. Yeah. I feel both kind of delighted and embarrassed by that. <laughs> <laughs> no embarrassment necessary. I like David Lynch before it was cool. Thank you. Hey. <laughs> Lord, that must have been a long time ago. <laughs> yes. um, He's so always are, been cool. We are going to always been cool. look at parts 17 and 18 together because that's how they were oh, presented to us. And Tempranillo's bloody nice, by the way, listeners. And uh, there is an awful lot to get through this two-hour lot we're also going to be including a interview with the producer of the show, Sabrina Sutherland, at the end of this particular episode. So it's going to be a long one, but it's not going to be a wasted minute. Let's dive in. <gasps> the past dictates the future. So we begin part 17 in Buckhorn with some more uh, Basil exposition happening between the crew. <laughs> Blatant of, exposition. Between <laughs> Albert and uh, Cole and Tammy, where they're reflecting on the death of Diane. And Cole is saying, I couldn't do it, Albert. Um, you've gone soft in your old age, accuses Albert. And you know, Not where it counts, buddy. You gross pervert, Gordon, as I've been saying all along. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this element of Gordon, actually, slipping in this idea that he's a bit of a dirty old man. He's such it's, a dirty um, old man! It's, it's been really fun. I think it's, it's you know, Lynch has been so playful with all these characters throughout this entire series, and he's been both delivering what the fans think they want, then pulling it out from underneath them and then delivering us something that completely goes against what we thought we wanted from the show and it's even more delightful because of that. And I think Gordon's sleaziness (laughs) is part of what makes this idea so rich. Oh, Denise Mm. was right all along. Yeah, I don't think we ever doubted her. (laughs) Here's to the Bureau and they all drink what looks like a very deep red fine Bordeaux. Um, then now listen to me, says Cole. And then they look at each other and he says, for 25 years I've kept something from you, Albert. Um, before he disappeared, Major Briggs shared with me and Agent Cooper the, uh, the origins of Judy, or as uh, he, pronou- he pronounces it, Jiao uh, Dai, I think it's, uh, is the Chinese term for um, to explain, but he yes, describes it as... Mandarin, I believe. Mandarin, thank you. And he describes it as uh, the ultimate negative force. Uh, so then we, we have, so you get this idea of Judy not being a person for the first time. I mean, there was, there was a lot of um, people noticing the use of pronouns around the term Judy, but then there was that missing pieces deleted scene that alluded to... Judy being a young woman, but then that was exorcised from Firewalk With Me for a reason, so I'm assuming there's possibly 
Judy has shifted from being Josie's sister to becoming this um, <laughs> the mother of all evil. Yes, well, well, as we see later on, where you know we're not above in Twin Peaks rewriting things. No, that's that's very very true. Yeah, all retrofitting. Nicole explains how they became they put together a plant along with Philip Jeffries, uh, who told um, me a long time ago that he was onto this entity when when he disappeared, and the last thing that Cooper told me was um, if I disappear, like Major Briggs and Philip Jeffries, do everything you can to find me. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, which, of course, everyone goes back to season three, part one, to the point where the firemen also describe this. Um, so what did, what did you think this was an allusion to specifically? Because we were never really given anything in black and white up until this point. Well, it's, I suppose it's the idea that there's something even bigger than the black slash white lodge and it's even bigger than Bob. It's even bigger than the, the story we've seen so far and, and that's that's sort of the next thing that's going to have to be grappled with even though we only get the smallest tantalising taste of that. Yes. It's 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 tricky. Maybe this is a good point for me this early actually to jump in with kind of my, how I, how, how, how I read Twin Peaks. Do mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And that's, there are three different ways to approach this show and the first point is the first way is the most literal way possible which is this is a world where bombs go off and demons are born into the world there's there's people who encounter strange beings from other dimensions that they think could be indian spirits they think they could be aliens but they're from this other dimension people are getting possessed there are doppelgangers the mythology is all real this is Mm -hmm. what i call the literal version which i really enjoy indulging in but I think it's also the most basic way of approaching the show and I think it's the most problematic if you take the show literally. Then there's the next level, which is the pastiche parody level, which is the whole of Twin Peaks, the television series, is playing with the form of TV narrative. Like that, that the first two series, especially the first series, is a weird collage of science fiction, sitcom. You know, Andy and Lucy are straight from a sitcom. You've got the melodrama, you've got detective stories, horror... And this series has kind of continued this hyper self awareness of its own mythology and its own, and and the, the fan base's desire to indulge in nostalgia, and that's why I really enjoy the way they deliver the most unexpected things of nostalgia, like James singing that ridiculous song, which yes. I well, mm. I adore, or Audrey's dance coming out from absolutely nowhere. And then there's a third level, which I think we'll get onto a lot more when we discuss the final episode, which is the heightened reading I have of Twin Peaks as a hugely personal work for Lynch, the artist, who throughout his entire career has been obsessed and disturbed by images of male violence against women. And he has constructed narratives very much around the idea of disassociation disorders, where people who have undergone trauma or even people who have committed acts of trauma have literally seen themselves as two different people um, and they've seen the perpetrators as two different people. So I've got that out of the way. That's fantastic. I love it. So this first scene we're talking about, I think is our kind of fun, silly mythology stuff, which I almost don't pay attention to. Right, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, like I actually, I kind of don't mind. I don't don't know what the two birds with one stone is. (laughs) I don't really know exactly what Judy is. I don't really mind. I think the first half of this first episode is setting us up to resolve the literal stuff which is, the, for me, fun, but it's also the least fulfilling, which is why the climax in the middle of this episode, which we'll get yeah. to, mm. I think it's a little bit anticlimactic. 
quite Whoa. deliberately. Really? Okay. But we'll get to that. We will. And I'll defend myself and Excellent. listen with fascination to how you yeah, think. Yeah, okay. I'm dominating already. You can tell I'm I, in you heaven, can. everyone. Yeah. This mm. is so good. Yeah. Until I host <laughs> my own show, Gardner, I'm just, <laughs> let me lay it out for you all. <laughs> you can see right now why I wanted Thomas for yes, the last this is, episode. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not being too annoying yet. Oh, no. no. <laughs> I'll back off. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Gordon also talks about how now we now have two Coopers. Ray Munro sent a cryptic message that Cooper we met in prison was looking for coordinates and looking for Major Briggs. I understand, says Albert. I know you understand, Albert, but I'm still sorry. <laughs> and then the phone rings. Oh, that, that was a beautiful moment. I, I love the romance moment. stuff between yeah, those characters. That's been it's beautiful sweet. to see. Yeah. That was one of my favourite things about the first two seasons too, the Cooper and Truman bromance. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Agent Headley is ringing up saying, we found Dougie Jones and he's gone. <laughs> and then, Great work, Stan, from Mad Men. Yeah, and we get a glimpse of Wilson again, who I'm going out to bat for every time I ever see him. Um, beside the hospital bed, Bushnell walks into the room holding the note very usefully that Cooper left him. And we're already on like a Bullet Express narrative resolution territory <laughs> here. Um, is that Gordon Cole? And then Gordon can hear that just fine, even though he's struggling to hear everything else. Um, it's 2.53 in Las Vegas, 2, 5 and 3 add up to 10, the number of completion. Right, such a, such a coop line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for so much of the show, it's been like, come on, look at the television now. Dougie's on screen yeah. being interviewed. Why aren't the FBI watching TV right now? And so much of this series is about delaying what we want, and then when we finally get there, it just rapidly yeah. flies through it all to wrap it up. <laughs> and I found it really funny. And quite exhilarating as well. And I love those other FBI agents. I mean, that episode where, you know, his senior screams at him, this is yeah. what we do, is one of the biggest laughs I've had Same. from the series. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've very much enjoyed seeing, like, how often, you know, the FBI agents are meant to be our moral, sensical centre of things, yet so many of them are completely inept. Like, yes. even mm. Cole and Albert and Tammy, who have, you know, managed to uncover a lot of things, in the end, what they've uncovered doesn't really matter to, yeah. to, to the thrust of everything and how everything ends up playing out. And I kind of love that subversion of law enforcement actually knowing what they're doing and and being an integral part to a plot that pretends for a lot of the time to be a mystery. Yeah, but essentially they're mostly static the entire time. They sit in the sheriff's department just, like, gathering clues. They'll be sitting in the, in the hotel room in Buckhorn just sitting there around, you know, machines waiting for stuff to happen, even though they've got a lot of the information they need. Yeah, and I think that's very deliberate. The, the characters of action in a traditional show here are very much inactive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then everything happens in the fastest speed we've ever seen it yet, where Tammy seems to look at some equipment and does all this really fast detective work and then concludes with, um, it's a Blue Rose case, most definitely, and then they all just head for the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. Oh, Tammy. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'll confess this to your listeners. I have not listened to your show um, previously because I've been so purist about wanting very to experience... Very fair, yeah, very fair. Wanting to experience this in my own little world because I'm very precious about Twin Peaks. So I don't know what you've said about Tammy previously, but... I defend Lynch on so many levels, but I'm not a big fan of Tammy. I I'm not a big fan of that casting. Uh, we've, we've increasingly grown to love her. I think having that initial reaction of, can Christabel act? What is she doing? Yeah. Sort of thing. But no, she she's definitely ingratiated her way into my heart throughout I think the I, series. I, I think I got there. And, and, and again, I just wonder, well, maybe it's a bit deliberate. I mean, maybe the idea of casting your musical muse as the, you know, it's like... That it's like Denise Richards in that Bond film, but mm. done ironically. I think it's just part of the, the, the gag. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we cut to Twin Peaks at Sheriff Station and the drunk, or Billy, depending on who, whose opinion you take, is sleeping against the bars of the cell and Chad wakes up. And, and then Chad echoes the mic from the last episode and says, finally, 
Chad moves, the drunk wakes up, and they stare at each other, and he begins to pull the bandage off his cheek and starts showing this chunk of flesh that's been taken off, which reminded me of the... Body horror moment. The the bit of cheek that we seem to find underneath the fishing tackle box in part one, but I have no idea if there's a, any connection there beyond being some sort of symbolic bit of flesh left behind, or whether he, this is a bit of flesh that was taken off to make a tall part that... Again, maybe he's going to turn up into the leader scene. I don't know. There's just so many questions around this drunk. It's a weird, weird. It's a very weird red herring. That whole character, isn't it? Yes. Um, so is him being Billy? Is that something that's been definitively proved? No. Said, or that's I think a theory it's a theory. Of theory. It's a, it's it's a, floating around. Yeah, it's a theory. It's that a nice a lot, theory. It's a very popular mm. theory. I hadn't heard that. Okay, good theory. I approved mm. fan base. Good work. No, <laughs> I, I mean that sincerely. That didn't cross my mind. I like that. Yeah. It's it, again weirdly anticlimactic, isn't it? We're trying mm. to see what's going to happen with this character. Do we get a big moment of bodily horror? And yeah, it's sort of nothing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Fucker, fuck you, says Chad, and then the drunk repeats. Uh, and then we get a blast of like a, of black and white and electricity and what looks like some Super 8 footage of some power lines. And then we get it was we very part eight, yeah, or Inland Empire, you could even say. And we I'll get, never get sick of that. Those distorted <laughs> shots of the electricity lines are just gorgeous. Yeah, yep. yeah, they're so, they're so juxtaposed so nicely against how rich and professional everything else looks. Mm. Um, Doppelkip is driving, and we get a, we know exactly where Doppelkip is driving too. Um, we cut back. So there's a lot of cutting between the upstairs of the sheriff station, this, the cells, the um, doppelkoops movement. Um, Nido is making animal noises that's kind of moved between sounding like a crying baby and back to being a monkey again. James and Freddie wake up. They have no idea what's going on. Nobody really does. Um, the drunk keeps copying her sounds. Chad looks agitated. All sorts of stuff. And then we get a little interlude of Ben Horn being on the phone and we get a bit of resolution to what happened with Jerry. He's in fucking Wyoming. Wyoming. Which, which is very far away. It's not like Wyoming is like next to Washington. You need to go no. through like half of Montana and some of Idaho. Yep, that's true. Yeah, and the nearest bit he could be in is Yellowstone, which is just bizarre. Anyway, that's what happens when you're high. Is it? Is it? <laughs> when you're whatever Jerry was on? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, he should be very fit. Anyway, he's got a. We've got a guy here with no name. He says his binoculars killed somebody. Did you see the brand of binoculars? No, I didn't pay attention to that. What were they? Bushnell. <gasps> Which means nothing, probably. Just another Probably means nice. nothing, yeah. but it's there. It's there <laughs> to it's drive there. you crazy. We understand Jerry is also naked and that Ben will make arrangements for him to be returned to Twin Peaks. Oh, I just hope his foot's still talking to him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we get some more shots of Doppelkoop driving and then we cut to his car parked by the side of the road and Doppelkoop is approaching Jackrabbit's palace with his GPS um, locator in hand. Um, we get lots of nice Battle of Menti ominous cues playing as he walks towards the smoke um, and then lightning flashes as he looks towards that pool, which I've kind of gone with the fact that it's, it's milk and honey. Mm. So if, whatever it is, it's the opposite of scorched engine oil. Least. Yeah, it's, it's generally the one that seems to pop up whenever the White Lodge is about to be entered. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. And then he does a nice flickering in and out and then uh, a, a vortex forms and he is sucked up into the White Lodge. And how good are these really basic effects? What yeah, I love about this isn't a show trying for realism. It's not... not it hasn't got these hardcore production values that you might get with... I've never watched Game of Thrones, but I'm assuming that has very high production values. Mm. Lynch is using the really fundamental, almost crude digital craft, which reflects his entire career of using very crude craft work effects, <laughs> not that it's German techno, as in crafty effects, to create something that makes us feel a certain way and it's uncomfortable it's weird it's uncanny yes mm. i love how he's using the, the crew digital techniques not to impress us as special effects but to make something look uncanny and mm. that's just so perfectly lynch and perfectly twin peaks yeah yep. i've loved the crap special effects particularly mm. when they're being juxtaposed against actually quite good special effects as well to kind of compound that feeling of everything is not right and 
what is trying to be pointed out to you is the fact that this world is unreal. There are many levels to it. There are places that you can transgress. You can transgress across the screen into different worlds and areas. And I feel like that that's what the often not so great and very, yeah, like Thomas said, very crude, very obvious effects that you initially want to laugh at, but the more time you spend with them, the more unnerved you get. It also reminds us that this is a constructed show. Like it's part of this thing that says this this isn't meant to be a show that you're completely lost in and watching passively. It constantly reminds you this is artifice. Mm. And, And when it hits those emotional chords for you, even though you're aware of how artificial it is, that's just part of its its brilliance. I mean, it's that that Brechtian thing. It shows you the strings. It shows you the working parts. And you still find yourself getting terrified and and, and moved, even though you can see how constructed it is. And I I really enjoy how smart it is like that. Yeah, so do I. And this is tying in a lot to the theory fish that we'll be discussing. (gasps) Exciting, good. Unexpected return of theory fish. Yes. I'm debating whether to call it see or re-fish because it's about seeing, not about theorising. Is it a stupid name? <laughs> Very, but I think Thank we should you. go with it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll um, have a listener poll on that maybe. Um, so anyway, we return and uh, we suddenly have Doppelkoop in the White Lodge. Wait, what? How did he wind up? Anyway, so this is very strange. He's in a cage. He's not going to go anywhere. Yes, he is. He's trapped instantly yeah, he's trapped. in a really strange-looking birdcage that we haven't seen before. Um, opposite Major Breeze's face and between them is a slide projector that um, seems to be ba- based on... A, iOS technology in which you can wave at it and the slide will move. Anyway, this It's great. It was like an, a trans-dimensional PowerPoint display. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even in other dimensions, yes. PowerPoint is crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's showing the Palmer house, which I thought was interesting, mm. but then we find in motions to push that picture away and it moves to show the sheriff's station. I mean, the Palmer house, as we're going to discover, is ultimately where the whole point of the show takes place because this is a show about someone who experienced horrific trauma and abuse and that's why the Palmer House really is the most central location in this entire show and even if it's been absent for so much of it, these last two episodes make up for that and yeah. then some. So it's interesting that that's the first thing we see because that is kind of the core of this show but um, the fireman first of all realises that the show's narrative is unfinished business and that's yes. going to involve sending um, what do you call him Bad Cooper or Double Mr. Coop or we're being Mr. calling C. him Double Coop yeah. we call him Double Coop sending <laughs> Double Coop to the sheriff's station where we know his fate is going to catch up with him mm. exactly yeah. and mm. it does feel like that, that yeah everything narratively has been heading towards the sheriff's station for the you know the entire run and the fact that Nido is there the fact that Freddy is there you know he is in Twin Peaks for a reason that has been orchestrated by the giant it's his you know, Destiny. It's his destiny. Yeah, very blatantly too. Yes, I mean, yes. All of the threads need to coalesce yes. at the sheriff's station. Yeah, which of course plays an enormously important part in the original mm. series as well. So that that's mm. something that Lynch is aware that as viewers we're going to want to see that. Mm. He's not going to exactly deliver exactly what we think we might want to happen at the sheriff's station, but he knows that stuff needs to go down. Yeah, mm. definitely, and it's about to. Um, so we get a brief appearance of the Palmer House. I more felt that they were monitoring it because mm. like, they sent a lot of watching there in the White Lodge and re- responding to things. Um, so the fireman prevents him from heading there and then uh, we reach him at the sheriff's station. Nido wakes up at this point when, as soon as he appears in the um, car park and the Doppelkoop approaches Andy and it's in, this, in this very strange scene of, like, we've seen Doppelkoop, you know, in his own world on dark highways with a lot of darkness and now here he's suddenly in a very, very familiar environment mm-hmm. and Nido is starting to get very, very agitated and I think she's trying to say something. <laughs> it's Freddie. 
at this moment, the fear for me kicked in big time. I got yes. very stressed and anxious because yeah. I love Andy. And of course we do. He's been presented as one of the most lovable characters mm. and we know what mm. Doppelcoop is capable, capable of. Doing. And like I said, even though we can see all the strings being played, we can see how this is constructed as the big showdown. Mm. I was really quite anxious about yeah. how this was going to go down yeah. and and marvelling at how Lynch can still do that. And mm. Frost, let's not forget Mark Frost, mm. how these, these two remarkable people... Um, can do this to us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I made notes several times during these last two episodes how much even those things would be set up and you would have a pretty reasonable idea about how narratively and sometimes emotionally they would play out. That tension was still so tight yes. through mm. all yeah. of it. And even though as soon as yeah, as soon as you see Doppelcoop approach Andy and you kind of know already you're like well Andy's probably gonna get out of this he's been anointed by the White Lodge as yeah, you know yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the purest person essentially but also left it's, the it's the second it last episode it's the second last episode so I'm you thinking Andy sit- could go exactly you're <laughs> sitting there and and your fear is outriding your logic mm. yeah 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 very true and we get a cut from this um, tense scene back down to Chad taking a very handy key out of his boot that seems to have been there the Fucking whole time Chad fuck Chad I got out of and, and I love it Chad really is there for for all of us to fucking hate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I enjoy how the... the I mean, he's called Chad. I mean, what more do you need? I, I do enjoy how the actor who plays Chad has apparently been very much enjoying all of the viewers' hatred towards his Oh, character. yeah, yeah, yeah. His role in the Cult of Chad Facebook page has not gone unmentioned on this podcast. And his role in the Twin Peaks singles chat room has just been mentioned as well, but I'll just leave it there and because everyone deserves their own privacy within a closed Facebook group. Although... In three letters, LOL. <laughs> He's holding a baby in a photo. Anyway, <clears throat> moving on. Oh. So uh, Chad escapes his cell after making sure that nobody's watching him um, it, through some very judicious editing, which seems to be only involved the, the uh, drunk slash Billy character. And then uh, we cut back up to Andy, who's like, I was just taking this picnic bas- basket in. Um, Hello, oh, Lucy. Such a paragon of purity. Yeah, isn't he? And then he's trying, He's introduced to, Cher, to Frank Truman and Andy looks really, really happy and Lucy smiles a lot. And then Andy seems to put two and two together. He seems to get those memories from the White Lodge coming back. Um, Chad goes to a locker, gets out a gun and, uh, and returns. Upstairs, uh, Cooper is sitting down. He's offered coffee. No, thank you. I mean, yeah, hello. Come on. Hello. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're not even trying to make that a subtle <laughs> moment, are they? But again, deliberately, I think it's very much like we're going to yeah. make it blatant for the audience what's going on, even though we already know what's going on, and it's yeah. going to drive us nuts. Yeah. Yeah. There is nothing but, more evil than someone who refuses coffee, particularly when he's wearing Dale Cooper's face. Yeah, that's a very... Yeah, very well said. I like the spite, Hayley. <laughs> yeah, me too. Mm. Um, Andy uh, races downstairs and says, very important, very important to Lucy, who seems to be able to interpret this, like through some sort of telepathic communication those two it's because they're have. perfect Andy well exactly yeah. and they've been married for ages yeah. trust me you get your own language going yeah. <laughs> um, Andy goes off to get uh, Hawk um, and then goes downstairs Cooper in the flesh he says and what brings you to Twin Peaks unfinished business Cooper call- then um, other Cooper calls Lucy on the phone from the um, car and on his way from Spokane, Air- Spokane Airport she seems very surprised um, and she f- she finally will understand mobile phones Andy. technology it's beautiful <laughs> She puts the call through to Frank, who then plays some amazing face games. With, <gasps> no um, one better at face games Donald than Coop. Robert Forster. Oh, my God. That's the mm. most impassive, gentle face. Yeah. Uh, so Harriet's Coop, we're just entering Twin Peaks City Limits. Put the coffee on. And then Frank and Doppelgo both at the same time realise what's going on, reach for their guns, and, Haley, you can take this. 
Lucy shot Doppelcoop, guys. It was yes. the greatest moment ever. <laughs> and this is part of what makes this show so goddamn brilliant because <laughs> everything in this scene is so overtly constructed and going exactly as we think it is. Like, the, the dialogue is is very obvious. This is, this is Lynch being almost slipping into parody, even though I think it still remains in the pastiche element of the, the big showdown going about to happen. And the whole time this is happening, you're thinking... There's no hawk in the scene. Hawk's going to turn up and save the day. That's how it's going to go down. He gives it to Lucy. And it's like, Lynch, you surprised me once yeah. again, you wonderful bastard. Hawk's going to go to the White Lodge. No, it's no. Andy. It's Andy, yeah. Yeah. Every time this show starts drip-feeding you the most obvious way it's going to fold out, it just pulls a mm. pulls something like that on you in ways that it is so much better and so much more satisfying than what was going on in your mind. Yeah. Lucy shooting Bad Cooper is so much better than Hawk or mm. anybody else in the whole show doing it. Yeah, and she's just totally chilled. She's not even like, oh, my God, I just shot a person. Yep. No, because she knows. She knows. And Andy backed her up. Yep. Yeah. And Andy's always fucked. Yes. <laughs> so I call this the Molly Weasley moment that I think I mentioned a few episodes ago. Although I, don't, I did not predict that Lucy would be the, the Molly Weasley of uh, Twin Peaks. But, God, everybody was thrilled with that. So what's that a reference to? Oh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Oh. Yeah. I saw the films once. Right, sorry. Sorry, I think 40% of our listeners just had no idea what I was saying. So this is the idea that the, 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 the big bad gets killed by somebody completely unexpected. Yeah, some, yeah, yeah. in this case, uh, yep, okay. yeah, somebody who's no, been like seen it. as a mother figure yep. and fairly minor. Yeah, comes in with guns blazing. Mm. Sorry for any spoilers for people who are not familiar with the final books in the Harry Potter series. Uh, downstairs. Meanwhile, downstairs, Chad is back with a gun. Andy walks in, Chad approaches him, Freddie punches the door open, knocking Chad out. Yes! Andy Highly cuffs satisfying. him, he hears the gunshot upstairs, I've got to bring you all upstairs right now. Why? I don't know why, but yep, He just cool. knows. Mm. Because plot. Yes. Agent Cooper warns everyone, do not touch that body. But that is Agent Cooper. No, it's not. And then we get to see the beautiful scene of the woodsman gathering around as Frank watches. I love to have Frank stays behind his desk the entire scene. Like well, I'm not. I'm not stopping a desk from being between me and the woodsman. No. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, Frank's Even the right if it idea. does have a magical Skype mm. screen inside it. <laughs> so Nido is writhing downstairs. James is kind of holding her, keeping playing the James masculine solid role that he's so good at playing this time around. And um, then Cooper rushes in. Andy, where is he in here? Cooper, um, what stands and watches the woodsman doing the smearing blood thing, that weird, beautiful ritual that we saw at the beginning of part eight. Um, Which is a reincarnation thing. Is that what we gathered yeah, going on there? Yeah, that's what I thought last time. I totally misread it um, mm. as being, oh, my God, Bob has left Doppelgroup. Now he's mm. really vulnerable. Oh, no, no, no. Mm. No, he's back just the same as he was. Um, we get this really nice um, handheld camera work of the over, up and down Doppelgroup's body as the blood is being smeared. And it's kind of nice. Again, it's this rough sort of digital... Mm. Digital vision. And the very odd piece of music they use for that sequence, which they also used the first time we saw the, the yeah. woodsman doing the blood smearing. I can't even describe it, but again, it's Angelo Badenolamdi pulling something out of the bag uh, that we have. Is that the slow down Swan Lake? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Oh, is that what that is? I think it is. It's very, yeah. very slow down. It's like a Hans God, Zimmer sort gorgeous. of speed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it works beautifully. Yeah. So then we see Bob rising in a black orb into the middle of the room. Mm. Yep. Which has not happened before to this extent. Um, and well, so that's the counterpoint, I suppose, the glowing orb the that Ball. is Laura. Yes. Either as the saviour or the martyr, depending on how you read it. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Or like a phys- physical representation of the soul, maybe, or something yes. like that. Yes. Um, then Cooper, are you Freddy? That's right. And here's me destiny. <laughs> Very good. Thank Very you. Very good. <laughs> I've been practising. Um, Bob flows towards Freddy, and then it becomes a weird sort of surreal boxing match between dimensions. Then, which goes through the floor in a burst of flames. 
Um, and then uh, another globe emerges. Bob's still furious and he keeps getting slashed in a similar sort of way across the neck and the bottom of the face. And the Cooper keeps encouraging him. And eventually we hear Bob's I'll catch you with my death bag line again. Always a, mm. always a welcome moment. Favourite hits, yep. Yeah, and then he gets smashed into uh, fractures and falls to pieces. And then the Mitchums, you know, who have been standing in for the audience at this point, like, well, that's one for the grandkids. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I, nicely diffusing. I mean, it wasn't yeah, yeah. quite as amazing as Gordon Cole saying he's dead, <laughs> which is probably the biggest laugh I've had, actually. Um, I, I actually feel like the biggest laugh I had this episode was when the showgirls came in and Candy goes, well, it's good that I made all of these sandwiches. <laughs> How beautiful are they? Yeah. Oh, Just gorgeous. I know. And I kind of love the fact that it turned out, like I know there were a lot of theories swirling around about, about Candy oh, yeah. because of her strange behaviour and whether she was somehow connected to Laura or various other goings on in Twin Peaks. And I just love the fact that just like, no, she was just a spacey showgirl. <laughs> Lynch is a big fan of Fellini and she's straight out of her circus scene in one of yeah. the Fellini films just to be a bit kooky and delightful and lovely. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering if she was, in retrospect now, was she there to normalise Dougie's behaviour a little bit? <laughs> yes, mm. to, to counterpoint. Yeah, yeah, just to make him not the only... Not the only kind of um, mm. Chance the Gardener type character in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah good call. Yeah, but, or um, somebody who's been dealing with you know abuse in a very strange, you know, in a physical manifestation, which is quite unusual. Look, knowing Lynch and Frost, there's probably some incredible backstory about her involvement in yeah. it all. I feel like the actor Amy Shields does have a giant backstory from Candy, just from what I've read with various interviews. When the next files her. come out, yeah. I'm sure there's yeah. like chapters and chapters dedicated to her. Oh, that would be great. Now, the, the, this sort of punching the globe thing, Freddie's big moment, this is what I'm, I'm going to argue felt a little bit anticlimactic, and I'm only saying that based on my own emotional response, which was a bit... Uh, Okay, whatever. And so then I started to think back, why did I have this feeling and, and what was going on here? And I realised it's all this stuff that we saw play out is the really literal stuff. It's, you know, he was literally possessed by Bob and then this character who has been created by the good guys has been in the right place. He has a magical fist to punch the orb. It's really basic. It's actually, I mean, it's a cool sequence, but it's not very fulfilling in any meaningful way. Uh, the other observation I made is I said before how the original series was a pastiche of, um, you know, sitcoms and, and drama and melodrama and uh, detective stories. Lynch has kind of done that again with this series, but I reckon he looked at the cultural landscape and said, what narrative is really big right now that's missing in Twin Peaks? Superheroes. Done. Yeah. Let's put it. Have you sp spoken about this before? We have not. No. This is excellent. Let's put in a superhero narrative, and mm. it's it's a really cheesy. We get the origin story told to James mm. in that that sequence where he's just so insanely British, and then mm. Lynch loves playing with these archetypes and stereotypes, and he's just there at the right moment to save the day. With I mean, this this sort of nobody, nothing minor mm. character destroys Bob yeah. and I think this is the way the series is signalling to us this is no longer that important yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. and it's too literal again this is not a story about a man who's literally got an evil doppelganger Cooper's possibly a more complex character who maybe has dreamt an idealised world where his evilness is located in another body that doesn't really belong to him. Mm. We probably will discuss that further as <laughs> we go along too. We yeah. will. And I think it's also <laughs> that the fact that Bob was eventually dispatched so ridiculously. Yeah, so quickly. Yeah. So quickly. Also, yeah, it, it is signalling that 
the evil that's represented by Bob is not destroyed when Bob is destroyed. This evil is everywhere. This evil is a part of the world and it's part of everyone's experience. And you can localise and you can, inverted commas, destroy a perpetrator of this type of evil, but you cannot eradicate it entirely. Yeah. Well, in my honours thesis, shadow of a twisted hand across my house, representations of abusive men and domestic violence in David Lynch's Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. This is amazing. I argue that Bob is the the he is the evil that men do, which is something that Albert says. He's the personification of patriarchal violence, and he doesn't literally possess people. People allow him in, mm. which is yeah. also a line mm. in that original series. Yeah. Leland was weak and allowed him in. He is not natural. He's not innate to masculinity, but he is innate to the patriarchy. And so he is very powerful and all present. And even though we've obliterated this symbol in this sequence, this idea of male violence against women is still very, very much... Uh, it, it, it's still very much there because we do have a whole other episode to go yes. where we discover... <laughs> All is still not well. Yes, I'll look forward to you referencing that again at some point. Cooper says, you did it, Freddie. And then Freddie gives a really ch- a, a chipper smile. <laughs> Job done. Um, destiny fulfilled. On you, Freddie. Do, do you have an agent, Andy, that people could contact for this no, fabulous I did spend, accent work? I spent half an hour this morning pretending to be Freddie's mother, but my, I wasn't quite convinced. I kept drifting towards Glasgow. I wasn't, couldn't stay in the East End. Because oh, she's, she's got a Twitter account just waiting to happen. She's got a lot of, <laughs> has a lot of unanswered questions. Anyway, <clears throat> Cooper is t- t- largely in charge again. Sheriff Truman, do you have the room key to room 315? How did you know? Major Briggs told me. And then Frank Handley pulls it out of his pocket and hands it over. And then Cooper looks at Nido and can't seem to remember quite something. And then, we get a sh- then from this point, we get a shot of Cooper's face superimposed over the following few minutes of scenes. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so the person I was sitting with, um, yeah. Rebecca Blakeney, it said, it's as if he's dreamed all this in the lodge beforehand. But then you can also read it that this is uh, Doppelkoop, you know, imagining this or dreaming this. This is, there is definitely a dream going on. It's just whose dream it is. Well, he even that says that. Yes, mm. the question. He quotes that one again. Or it's the series finally alerting us to the fact that the whole thing is a dream of Cooper. Mm. That this whole series has taken place while Cooper sits there and dreams about Laura whispering in his ear. This entire mm. eighteen episodes is a dream that's happened during that moment. Mm. Maybe. Or it's, yeah, <laughs> it's maybe the dream of Richard, a bored FBI agent who decides to. <laughs> and this would fit into the kind of the, yeah this would fit into the the kind of narratives Lynch has done in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive that in, yeah you're right even Cooper's not real he is the dream of of, of Richard yeah mm. nice oh I I have another dreamer theory that we will air later mm. well, okay so um, and Gordon Cole here he is right on time and Gordon and Albert and uh, Tammy march in now says Cooper there are some things that will change the past dictates the future. And this is the point where Candy walk and, walk and the girls walk in with food. It's a good thing we made so many sandwiches. <laughs> Bless uh, them. Frank, give my regards to Harry, says Cooper. And Nido lurches forward to Cooper and they do this strange touching palms thing. And Nida takes her hand away as and we get some new um, battle of cue um, happening. And as this begins to swell and her face shifts, then we get this glimpse into the red room of this beautiful, like, like primitive art that you were mentioning earlier, Thomas, about how this floating black egg just moves across the room as if it's some sort of ugly soul or something like that that's being cast away. I wasn't really sure how to read that, but it didn't look like a happy thing. Yeah, or it's a visual cue to the very original series where we first see the Red Room, and there's just that shot of that strange shadowy object floating past in the oh, background yeah, 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 of one yeah. scene, yeah, which it was never really fully explained, but that's this true. seemed like a visual throwback to that. 
Nice one. Yeah. I haven't thought of that. Yeah. It's like this black egg sideways eye thing. And then it breaks open to reveal um, a sliver of Diane's face. And then Cooper smiles and Diane is back, red hair, dressed like the Red Room with black and white nail, alternate nail polish and dressing gown and pyjamas get up that she's kind of borrowing from Nido. So the Diane-Nido connection turns out to actually be true. If anyone wants to send me their essays or analysis on Asian bodies used as literal shells for caucasity, please send them to me because I'm highly unimpressed with this continuation throughout the series. Yeah, my thoughts did turn to you as soon as this It is very happened. bad. It is very bad. It seemed very unwoke. I thought Twitter won't be happy with this. I think there's a case here that that was possibly clumsy. Mm. Now, Lynch works with stereotypes and archetypes in all his shows, absolutely. And I mean, we saw with Freddy's the most absurdly kind of British character. Mm. And I, I think he's done that as well with this kind of... Is it even specifically Chinese or Japanese? It's, or it's, it's sort of Japanese, apparently. General Orient. Yeah, Jerry, general or, or Orientalism mm. going on, leaning towards Japan. Yeah, there, there's also the fact that that word for Judy is just kind of just taken from Mandarin without any kind of bio. He's, he's used that iconography to yeah. make the link between mm. these two characters, sure. And it, it does. Yeah, look, I can see there's a cultural appropriation argument mm. there. Oh. I also know that Lynch loves, uh, he's spoken quite openly about his interest, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Taoism? Taoism. Taoism, yeah. yeah. So Lynch isn't a stranger to Chinese. It is Chinese, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, no, I'm speaking from a position of ignorance too. Lynch isn't a, isn't a complete stranger to this philosophy. Neither is Frost. Yeah, neither is Frost. Um, so I think that informed their decision about why to put this in. But this, this is an, as, an aspect of the show I'm probably least comfortable in, in blindly defending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Considering, you know, it, it's very much a shadow of the the entire Mr. Tajimoto <laughs> subplot yes. um, in season two, which is like with literal yellow yeah. face. Like this is literally only a tiny step forward in terms of like we will have the Asian body played by an Asian actor. Mm. Um, yeah, it's very from, from everything that has happened in this season of, of Twin peaks and you know as as previous podcasts will attest you i've been mad about a lot of stuff yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know i i think this this is the one thing that i think is a really 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 big flaw that cannot be kind of smoothed over mm. i think it's it's worth bringing up i i, I think it's more carelessness mm. and possible uh, I, laziness and yeah. I, look i think, I think it it's ref- laziness and it's not it's not deliberately malicious like these are men no. who are genuinely interested in these kind of ideas and cultural ideas i think what they're not realizing is that what they're doing within these kind of representations is far more appropriation rather than appreciation. It's also Asian culture through the guise of the Western media that Mm. this show is a pastiche and parody of. So there we Mm. go. Maybe that's a way you can kind of awkwardly defend it, that it's still part of the culture. This show is very self-consciously both parodying and sort of paying tribute to. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm really glad we've talked about it. Yes, it, no, it, I've I've been I've talked about these things a lot, and people have not liked it. But it's just I I feel like it's very very important to pull these things out and yeah, go. Well, you know, it's not uh, a deal breaker, no, is it? No, it's you, not. You can like, point out these problems without and throwing still enjoy the, whole thing the rest out. of the show. Yeah. That's the thing. I think yeah. it, it's that thing of you know you can still love a thing while also knowing very keenly what it's doing badly and what it could do better. You know. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Well said. Um, so speaking of surprises, um, Diane and Cooper kiss passionately as everybody watches on. 
so this so mm. suddenly you get this whole re- retconning reappropriation of the Diane Cooper relationship, which, according to my life, my tapes was fairly chaste with one potential illusion that could mm. refer to a sexual encounter or just a romantic platonic. Yes, well, platonic there was encounter. the thing that the the Tulpa Diane had mentioned during her big of course confession and this that you know later. when when she was kissed by Doppelcoop, she mentioned that this had only happened once before, and you never quite know whether mm. it was just a kiss or whether it was something else. And there are hints that even. Mm. The good, 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 pure Dale Cooper from the original series had dodgy experiences with women in the past. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's the whole yeah. Carolyn yeah. storyline. I, I actually, it's weird. It's a moment I found uncomfortable and appealing. Like, I kind of love the idea of them getting it on. I also love the idea of seeing the two lead actors from Blue Velvet kind of being yeah. reunited because <laughs> those characters are so chaste and it's a really passionate sexual kiss yeah. um like it, it was actually a bit of a charged moment i'm yes. down for that yes. but mm. particularly when you also factor in the fact that karma glocklin and laura dern did actually date in real life for several years oh did they yes yeah. they did i i wonder if this is a now a clue as to the fact that if we're not if we haven't been there already or even possibly for the entire series we are now in cooper or maybe richard's complete wish fulfillment zone Mm. that this relationship with Diane's not real, but it's something Cooper has always subconsciously mm. dreamed about. And now his wish fulfilment, he's in pure wish fulfilment land now. Although, as we often see in Lynch narratives, when characters go into a kind of imaginary state, real life does come crashing in. Yes, yes. It yes. doesn't stay like that for long. I also thought it was potentially a way for them to read each other as to whether the other was a tulpa this is this is also a thought i had yeah yeah and then i, I then i continued that and was like what if she's passing something to him through from her mouth to his but i think i was overthinking it um anyway. you're always overthinking <laughs> it and i love it about you andy <laughs> no i just had a flash of that that kate bush album cover the dreaming where she's passing a key like a to oh, all right. i was thinking That's more a, they have to see a clinic the next day and get that tested no okay. no I was th- or, or a gold bug yes anyway um do you remember everything yes she says and then they, she looks past him at the clock and the clock won't go to 253 it'll stay flickering between 252 and 253 so we can't achieve numerical completion we can't get to the 10 the two five and three mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the Cooper, whose face has been superimposed over this, we live inside a dream, he reminds us. Cooper says, I hope to see you all again before the curtain call, every one of you. Mm. <laughs> and then we get the rising sound of electricity flickering, and then he shouts, Gordon, and Gordon shouts, Coop. And then we disappear into this swirling metallic wind sound, and blackness envelops the screen. And then we cut to Gordon, Cooper, and Diane walking through blackness, um, with, fa- with Cooper's face still over the scene, but now with some sort of digital halo around it. It has some sort of vague strobing effect. Mm. which was getting back to this more simple special effect thing. They're walking towards the boiler room under the Great Northern. Presumably this is the source of the noise that James investigated Mm. and Richard could hear. Yes, the sound that's Mm. associated with Mike. Mm. Yeah, I love that sound. It's It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I'd love to get it on a loop. Mm. I'm sure that could be arranged. Yeah, look, I think what's happening here now is these three readings that I've always done of Twin Peaks, they're converging. We've we've got the literal stories falling out, is is coming to fruition. We've got the hyper-meta story is coming together with the director of Blue Velvet with his two stars together, marching in darkness towards camera. And we're now moving into the section of the show now that is finally going back to the core of Twin Peaks, which is it's about a girl who suffered horrific abuse. And we've seen her highly subjective version of events in the film, Firewalk With Me, and now we're going to see the highly subjective events played out by the obsessed detective who's not nearly as noble as he thinks he mm. is. Mm. Yes. The noble and that we've thought he's been for mm. so long. Yeah. yeah. 
So what did you take from this cut between the sheriff station? There's no, like, let's get in the car and drive to the Great mm. Northern and get out and walk in. It's just... We just move there as if it's a dream logic. We, we, well, it's, it's, because, it's dream logic. Yeah, it's yeah. dream logic. Yeah. We're, we're no longer in a place where, you know, A to B. It's not A to B anymore. We're A to Q or mm. A, to, a, mm. a to numbers. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Lynch yeah. has never been afraid to mix dream logic in with waking logic. Mm. He's and, and as we've seen in Twin Peaks, he's not afraid also to mix meta logic mm. with, with the kind of inherent show logic mm. that we're meant to accept. And yeah. considering that we're already viewing an image that is superimposed with another image over mm. it, I think this is a really it's a really, really obvious sign that you know we're dealing with multiple realities multiple perspectives dream world awake world mm. other in between worlds we're all there yep yeah and we're also about to confront our relationship with the original series yes 100%. we are mm. um so the hum continues and it rises and the camera pans to the door the three walk to the basement and then he unlocks it with the 315 room key intriguing now listen i'm going through this door don't try and follow me either of you he hugs diane he shakes cole's hand the hum rises into much, much louder to like feedback levels. And then he says, see you at the curtain call and closes the door. And then we cut to Cooper walking towards the camera, which is the very first image we ever saw of the return. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, of him coming out <gasps> yes. of the darkness. That, 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 that occurred to me as well. And again, I think that had to, I mean, considering how carefully Lynch decided oh, what yeah. we were going to see beforehand, <laughs> that must have been deliberate. Mm. Mm. Um, and then we see he's facing Mike, and who then recites his line from episode one of the first season and also... Uh, Fire walk with me through the darkness of future past. Uh, the magician longs to see one chance out. Was that a TS or a? That word has always been very yeah deliberately. I was watching his mouth going. Mm. Is it chance or is it yeah. chance? Mm. Yeah, I love it because it's so both. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with double <laughs> meanings yeah. here. Yeah. We've always been, we've always been dealing with doubles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one chance out between two worlds. Fire walk with me, and their faces flicker and they walk together, and we get a beautiful reinterpretation of the walk to the convenience store that we saw a couple of parts mm. ago. Um, only this time it's in light, the, this daylight in the forest as it flickers between this tunnel that they walk toward. They arrive at the same staircase. This time it's not monochrome. It's kind of a dark brownish colour. We still get the David Bowie explosion motif on the, mm. the toward the bottom of the staircase. Uh, oh, that use of light, it just blows my yeah. mind. It's stunning. And, and that, that forest walk too, this, this kind of idea of walking through some kind of portal and the way they pan over the forest. It, it just looks gorgeous. Mm, yeah. I mean, th these are moments where I think, the, the, you know, Lynch is just revelling in how good the image looks. And I'm more than happy for him to be just doing that. <laughs> Please yeah. be super indulgent as long as these images look this good. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, look, I, I've long been a champion of if it looks mm. good, I don't care what's happening in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so as they walk up the staircase, the jumping man descends down the stair in a case in a blur of feedback and really loud static. Mm. Well, is this a Sarah Palmer? Still, What's going he's on? still freaky, isn't he? Isn't he? Yes, yeah, especially like, when he's surprised. He's always I like, I like him. Mm. Yeah, I always tried to make a mask, a paper mache mask. It's very actually hard nose. to make it a very long rubbish. nose without it falling off. Yeah, it looked yeah. rubbish. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there we go. There's, <laughs> there, there's some structural art feedback for everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, of course, now we're familiar with where the, the door is going to take them to. Um, and they turn up in the Mount Sinai Motel which I think is Diamond Motel, I think is the name it goes by in Firewalk with me. I can't quite remember. Cooper follows Mike in a different direction to the one that we followed when Double Cooper was um, going to visit Jeffrey's. Mm -hmm. uh, and so through this uh, different direction, they still arrive in Jeffrey's room, but this time we get a glimpse of all these uh, lots and lots and lots of bells with uh, antennae on top. So these are like the teapot slash the bells that we saw in the White Lodge. It's 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 a teapot farm. Teapot farm. He's got a teapot farm going on there. Yeah. I have no idea what that means and I don't need to know. I just love the image. <laughs> mm. 
Because I'm very impressed with the level of detail you're getting here. There's stuff I missed that you're bringing oh, right. up right now. So this is Andy yeah. is so good at a close image read. I, I, I right. see why you've got so many listeners. This is great. I'm enjoying this a lot. Thank you. Sorry, let's keep going. <laughs> so here they enter through his steam, and then we, this time we see him in colour, which is a really nice change. Philip says, "Cooper, please be specific." He replies, "The date, February twenty third, nineteen eighty nine." We know what that date is. We do. So he seems to be asking to go back to the date that Laura died. I'll find it for you. It's slippery in here. He said he's implying he has feet. I don't know. No, everything's just slippery now. True, yeah. It yeah. is a teapot that's going to have water yeah. in there. It could <laughs> be quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> it could be very literal, but it also could be that, like, everything from here on in, narratively, emotionally, mm. plot-wise, is slippery. You're not mm. going to be able to grab hold of anything. I mean, yes, mm. absolutely. Yeah, totally. It's good to see you again, Cooper. Say hello to Gordon if you see him. He'll remember the unofficial version. This is where you'll find Judy. Jeffries emits the owl motif, which reshapes itself into the log lady's tattoo, mm-hmm. the, the one, the um, the triangular image. Oh yes. Which then um, it becomes a figure eight, which has a little seed or a planet or a sort of ball in it. Eight is very important. Very important. Then and you know that I normally pay zero attention to any of the numbers that have happened in this show because that's not how I roll. But eight is very important for I... what is about to come. Well, I assumed it was the infinity symbol. It's the infinity well, it symbol. Yeah, it begins yeah. as an eight and then it stretches out because they're in yeah. room eight mm. in the motel. And then of course it. it turns horizontally yes. and that's the infinity symbol right. I think it's yes. yeah and it's very yep. important for the fact that we're looping back everyone yes. so this is really really loaded by the time you get to the end of part 18 you can look back at this and be like okay this is where things really it was just... all foretold yeah and the seed is obviously them now on the path yep. yeah. of continual looping um, which is also how traditional television serials worked it was just endless repetition there's a um, when, when, when I first wrote on Twin Peaks as a TV show, there was a great article called, I think, The Art of um, the Repetition. It was this idea that TV series at their best tell you the same story. Well, yeah, this, this is sort of traditional sitcoms and dramas. It's the same story every episode. It's just telling it to you in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why Twin Peaks has always had this feeling of you're never going to get mm-hmm. resolution. It is always going to keep looping and continuing. Yeah. So it's, it, it's the sort of thing that you see played to its most excessive extent in soap operas, like those yep. sort of things like Days of Our Lives, Young and the Restless, you know, like the kind of shows that the original Twin Peaks was massively taking off. Yep. Of the, It's just this continuous story that just keeps happening. You will not get resolution because, you know, Brooke's baby will grow up and she'll do the same mistakes as her mother who will all blah, yeah, blah, 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 an, blah, it's, blah. It's an endless it's, narrative. Yeah. Actors come back and play new characters, <gasps> yep. which we saw with the Jacques Renault actor in, early in yep. this series. Characters who died will all of a sudden reappear yep. and, you know, characters who'd long been lost will return back with different faces. It's yeah, people play yeah. their own cousins. There's no closed yeah. narrative. Yeah, people yeah. play their own cousins. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. Electricity, says Mike. Mm-hmm. Electricity. And then he and Cooper... He actually says it mm. in normal forward voice, the way it used to sound said in reverse. Yeah. Didn't he? <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether that was a gag, but I loved it. Yeah. It just sounded very it cool. Nice it was so yeah. much playing with sound. It was yeah. great. And then we get, uh, like, uh, lots of frames. They jump in and out of frames and they burst with static and then Cooper's eyes are closed and we shift to the monochrome and then blackness. And... We can return to Firewalk With Me, the black and white scenes in a very sort of Back to the Future 2 kind of way in which Cooper is watching on. Yes. One, just on a really, like, basic level, I love the balls of Lynch going, I've got two hours of Twin Peaks left. Let's replay ten minutes of Firewalk (laughs) With Me. (laughs) 
With bonus Cooper in the background. With yeah. bonus Cooper. And you know how much I love Firewalk with me, so I was 100% I was on board with this. But I was also very aware while watching it and loving that, oh, my God, there's so many people who are so mad right now. Well, it's – it's. A, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we're all on the same page by thinking Firewalk Me is a masterpiece. Yes. And we all felt that way before it became popular. Yes. <laughs> well, no. 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 I only started watching Twin oh, Peaks five this, yeah. months ago. Yeah, I, I adored – Firewalk so. Me has long been one of my favourite Lynch films and um, all this has just consolidated that yeah. even more. But, I mean, the, the, this idea now of, of inserting a character from the future into the past through old footage, mm-hmm. we've seen this more and more in popular culture. I mean, I, I didn't yeah. see the last Terminator film, but apparently that's all that did. We've seen it in the, the recent the, Doctor Who. The recent Doctor Who, the recent Star Wars films. Yeah. And, yeah. it look, it doesn't quite work, but when Lynch is doing it, yeah. I'm paying attention. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. He's not doing and, for no and reason. And the fact yeah. is he, yeah. he does it so well that you're sitting there very, very aware that this is spliced footage, that it's yep. not original Firewalk with me footage that a lot of the the scenes you see where Cooper is holding Laura's hand and you know it's a stand-in, you know it's mm. not actually Cheryl Lee. Well, again, he's but aware it this feels, is a convention, and that's, that's the convention. Yeah. But it feels even more extra real because the the image is poking out at you so many inconsistencies, and it's just making you think. And the more it makes you think, the more it actually makes you believe that this is now the experience that is happening. Yeah. And I think you're about to get to my favourite bit, Andy. I think we are. Um, So James is outside on his bike. Laura rushes out to him. Leyland watches from the window with an amazing Mm. face. Um, Ray Wise's excellent face. Mm. Underused. Some people people will be saying about the return. Um, James rides away into the bush. We get a shot of uh, Laura on, on the back of his bike. Luke Cooper flickers into view and to watch the scene of Laura getting off the bike in the woods and when she talks to James. Then as soon as she gets off the bike, you can see her white suspender and the strap. And I was like, oh, my God, okay, this is like a, a deleted scene or they're doing some amazing special effects to, to retcon this because this was slightly different. There's a lot of stuff that was identical. Mm. Um, and then the stuff where you start realising, oh, no, this is alternate footage, that oh, was yeah. where... You're in an, yeah, it's yeah. like a beautiful way of showing you're in another reality but you're also in the yeah. reality that you're familiar with which you're familiar um, she has the conversation, I know you love me and I love you. I do love you, James. Let's get lost together. They kiss and then Laura sees Cooper oh my God. over yeah. James's shoulder. We get a protracted scream and the scene, the scream goes slightly longer. The cut goes for slightly longer than it did in the film, just enough to jar and just to disconcert. I mean, the way they so successfully work Cooper into that moment, which is just a strange moment in the original film, and I can't help wonder, was that Lynch's plan all along? Yeah, yeah. Probably wasn't, but I wouldn't put it past him. No, no. He does <laughs> yeah. hold on to ideas for a very, very Yeah, long I mean, time. I either we've seen... I mean, there are so many moments where it's either the product of somebody who's held on to this idea for 25 years now or he's just been incredibly smart at knowing how to weave into the... how to retrofit to the original series and film. Yeah. Well, Either way, it's brilliant work. Well, it's, it's similar with the, the shot from Sunset Boulevard that we saw. Has that, has that shot just been sitting yes. there potentially being able to be used for 25 years mm. or longer? Or did someone bring that idea to him, you know, in 2014 and go, hey, what about this? And he'd be like, oh, that's great. Let's put yep. that in. I mean, people talk about George Lucas, how he always intended all these stories post-Star Wars, and I, I've never believed it for a second. <laughs> no. But, but with, yeah, with Lynch, mm. I do... I really wonder. Because that's <laughs> yeah. the thing, and you've seen so many many iconic Lynch images resurface during the return. Like, we've seen things that have been mirrored in a razor head, which he made in, like, the 70s Mm. and at the beginning of his career and his short films and that sort of thing. It really 
is not surprising if he has held on to these ideas for so long and just decided to re-employ them or redistribute them or be re-inspired by them to tell something yeah. quite epic. But, yeah, from here on in, my heart was in my mouth. Same. And I was yeah. struggling not to burst into yeah. tears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, she gives him the finger. They kiss. Cooper watches. Um, I think you want to take me home now. We can see the traffic lights, but it's this time in very crisp and beautiful monochrome. Yeah. Mm. That was a really beautiful shot. Gorgeous, yeah. It's kind of wonderful how the black and white just makes you look at and almost understand Firewalk With Me in a very different way. Yeah, so I took this to be a mix of Firewalk With Me, of um, some alternate takes we didn't see, of a missing pieces mm. moment, and then we get to cut to some brand new stuff. I think it was a combination of all four of sources, mm. but mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure I could be corrected. She gets off and she falls off the bike at Sparkwood in 21... She screams and then runs into the woods. Um, and then we see the shots of Leo, Ronette and Jacques waiting for her to come out of the woods, which she never does. Uh, and although I remember that, that she actually goes into the woods and meets up with a trucker who then drives her to these three. I think, I think that's the original yeah, cut. Yeah. And then we get to see her walking into the – sitting by a tree root and crying – and then with this, from this point, I think it's a different actress. I'm not sure who it was. There was no one in the credits. It could be Cheryl Lee with some amazing CGI or... I have a feeling there was some CGI at work. It could have also been a stand-in. It was um, all shot in medium-wide yes. too, uh, medium-long, yes. which was the smart yeah. decision, I which think. Which is a smart yeah. decision because you could only really twig that it was definitely someone different in those sequences where Cooper and Laura were in the same shot mm. together. Yeah, but what a brilliant way to make you force your attention onto this person by mm. looking for any anything that jars against your memory. Oh, it's gorgeous. Because yeah, that's the yeah, thing, exactly, this, yeah. this entire episode is all about playing tricks on your memory and what you remember and what you think you remember. Yeah, mm. it's, I mean, again, it's getting so meta now it, mm. and it's so playing to what fans remember and and you know the existing show but at the same time it's somehow making you feel some extraordinary things and as much as i've loved this new series i haven't had as many of the real kicks in the gut and yeah you know bursting into tears moments that i got from the original two two series but Mm. the moments that this new series have delivered along those lines have Mm. been profound and this sequence is one of them absolutely Yeah. yeah and and for me personally those moments have all nearly all been centered around the palmers Yep. Yeah. Well, that's a good reason because it's yep. always been the heart of this world. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And she blinks. She sees Cooper. Um, the Laura's theme is playing in the background. Who are you? Do I know you? And Cooper stares at her. Right. I've seen you in a dream. In a dream. And then her theme gets louder mm. as, th- as Cooper holds, stands silently and holds out his hand and she approaches and then takes his hand. And then we get a cut to her body wrapped in plastic and then it flicks, flickers out of existence. And then we return back to the scene of her and Cooper, but they're now in colour in another beautiful Wizard of Oz nod, possibly. Where are we going? We're going home. And then he leads her into the woods and the camera pans up to some trees and we cut to black. And then we get, the, then we get to see the opening scenes of, the re, of episode one, season, season one, of Josie looking into the mirror. The magnificent Joan Chen finally returned to us. <laughs> Jack Nance walking in to talk to Catherine oh, Martell. bless oh. Jack Nance. Hmm. Um, and then he walks out to go fishing. There's no Laura by the log. He just keeps walking. Mm-hmm. And then Josie turns away from the mirror, humming, and Pete Martell just fishes. Yep. It's powerful stuff. It's because incredibly powerful is. stuff. It, it's delivering a nostalgia kick you didn't realise you you wanted. Mm-hmm. It's it's <laughs> playing with this idea that maybe Laura doesn't mm-hmm. have to die. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, we know so much now about how she has suffered and what happened to her. Maybe she can be spared of that. Mm-hmm. It, it 
there's one part of my brain thinking this is ridiculous, but also what a beautiful way for Lynch to to pull the rug out of our yeah. our feet. What a beautiful yeah. thing to do to finally save this the, this person who was the victim of so much horrific abuse. But but I was but, also thinking. It's not going to last, is it? No, it cannot last because you cannot rewrite the trauma. Yeah. You cannot pretend that the trauma did not happen. Because right now we're in the dream slash wish fulfilment of Cooper and the viewer. Mm -hmm. And this show is going to break the spell. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) How are you going, Andy? Okay. (laughs) It's a lot of feels. It's so many feels. Sorry. Um, Did anyone notice the colours in this scene? Um, because they were so vivid. Like, mm-hmm. the, so the Blu-ray vivid. remaster didn't touch how gorgeous these opening scenes looked again. Like, the, the Josie's hair was so beautifully and black and shiny and Jack mm. Nance's jumper was so red and everything just seemed extra vivid, I thought. No, that's like, a good... Yeah, well observed. Like a heightened reality. Yeah. must have been painstaking, yeah, the restoration. Yeah. They didn't oh, know. Yeah. There's some beautiful colour correction going oh, on, it's I think. ridiculous, just yeah. To, just to really so, make it vibrant. So was, did they, was that just a, a shot they took of... Like an outtake they never used of Pete walking, just walking to go fishing and possibly, yeah. Just, or either it's been spliced in so well that it's also another stand-in. Yeah. Oh, just oh, don't it's quite a stand-in, yeah. 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 Oh my god, it was just perfect. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then, yeah, true to what you just said, um, we get a cut to the Palmer household where we get to the sounds of domestic terror and um, metallic screaming and a, what sounds like a baby crying, and we get a held shot. But they're slightly, the camera's moving slightly as if mm. it's about to go and follow something at any moment. It's very tremorous. Yeah, and then Sarah comes in crying. We see Laura's picture, and then in a way that she echoes Leyland's attack of the picture in um, early parts of season two, she grabs the picture off the um, counter and tries to smash it with a bottle. All right, you want to know my theory? This is, this is horrific, this bit. This mm. is my theory. <laughs> so this is the point in the narrative where possibly Laura's death has been removed from time. So Laura is now alive, which means that what could have happened is Sarah Palmer has finally figured out that her husband has been cheating on her with her own daughter and she's lashed out with jealousy and hatred towards her daughter for cheating on her with her husband. Which then leads me to the next even more disturbing thought I had, which is maybe Sarah Palmer is Judy Mm -hmm. because the evil she committed that was never really addressed in the original series, was she allowed this to happen? Yes. We know that she knew this happened. She allowed herself to be drugged. She was very much a victim as well, but she was also complicit in in the in the abuse. So she could be the final piece of the evil picture. Mm. Well, we've definitely spoken in previous episodes that kind of you've, you've special that yeah. specialist type of trauma, which is a parent who knows about the abuse of their child mm. and the the levels of did they know? Could they have stopped it? You know, did they just pretend that nothing was happening in order to keep that shell of domesticity? Yeah. I think the film makes it clear that yeah. she went into heavy denial. Yeah, oh, and absolutely. certainly this new series has implied there is something mm. very nasty that's yeah. now grown inside Sarah. Yeah, and I particularly, I think that you know, even if you know, even if Sarah isn't Judy itself, mm. her home was a site of such evil and such abuse and and utter, utter devastation that I wouldn't be surprised if the Palmer household was the site of Judy. That's where Judy exists. Mm. And Sarah Palmer's just been in a house with it for decades. Yeah, well, I mean, this was a theory that we were hoping might get actually become part of part 17 and 18 was that it would explore this tension between uh, Sarah and um, and Laura. Mm. Um, because we kind of became 
I, don't know, I think we both we agreed that mm. she would be, had become a void, like a shell. She was so destroyed yep. by trauma and being so clo- in such close quarters to mm. it, and having been drugged and having been living on alcohol and cigarettes for you know for years and years, that she became a perfect void and a perfect vessel to be able for the experiment or the jumping man to be able to inhabit. Mm. And so, mm. in this case, I think it, this is where it could be read that uh, the experimenters realised that they've been outfoxed by the White Lodge, and now that they don't have Laura as a source of Garmabosia as a source of this um, huge pain, and so they've got to go and create an alternate reality to be able to, be able to throw um, Cooper in, or Laura into, to mm. be able to make sure that they can still do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because the sound, you know, we're getting a lot of loud electrical signals and currents mm. in this in this particular scene, but she also can't destroy no. the picture. No, we, we get a, the, we, the picture mm. remains so pristine. It's we, just it's just the glass and the frame that we get just a loop shattered. of this yeah. bottle smashing and glass yeah. coming back and smashing again. Well, mm. because that picture of Laura is the Laura that the town knew, which was the mm. perfect girl, the the the, the homecoming mm. queen. Yeah. Um, and and that mythology of Laura has lived on and prevailed, even though the the very complex tragic human behind that figure mm. has been obliterated yes and the fact that we've started every single episode of the return mm. with that picture superimposed on top of the falls and the peaks is just like and that so, version oh. of who Laura is is yeah. something that the patriarchy constructed the beautiful mm. homecoming queen and she got punished for fighting against the patriarchy in its most monstrous, which was her abusive father. So that idea of this kind of perfect girl, even though we know the truth behind what has happened to her, has has loomed large over this entire series. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you also take a meta moment in this, of like Lynch and Frost trying to smash the icon of Twin Peaks? Didn't occur to me, but that works. No, well, it, it definitely yeah. does work. And I think that, like, look... I don't think Lynch in particular is very... He doesn't want to destroy Laura because I think so much of his work in Twin Peaks and post-Twin Peaks has been about the spectre of Laura in so many ways. Like, here's this girl that he essentially tortured and had horrific things visited upon her and so much of his work since that seems to be about reconciling himself or refacing that trauma that he put upon this character. I don't think Lynch wants to destroy Laura. I think the entire point of Twin Peaks is Laura. Yeah, but do you think they want to destroy Twin Peaks? And that's a visual way of representing... As a visual way of representing... I think they're possibly... They did that in other ways. Or it's, an, yeah. or it's the way they're articulating their, their, their fury at their own narrative. Yes. And, and, and this idea... Again, this idea there is a public mm. and a private Laura, and the public Laura has persisted. And there, you know, she appears in fan art. People, you know, mm. she that you can get figurines of Laura in plastic and 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 mm. Bob and this kind of pop culture embracing of Twin Peaks, which has adopted the kind of weird, kooky, weird stuff that's so detached from the mm. core tragedy of this story which mm. which um you know even in the original series lynch couldn't explore to the full extent that he wanted to because of restrictions on television at the time that he finally get to he finally got to do in fire walk with me so yeah she's the face of this podcast she yeah, is yeah but of course she, I mean, of course and, she and is and she was yeah. the face of yeah. the advertising campaign you yes, know all over the world i don't stuff. think just here <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and if it's not this face it's the it's the face of her in wrapped in plastic which is again mm. kind of presented as a kind of martyred saint-like mm. f- 
figure and and this series is also played with the idea that what if Laura is some kind of martyred saint and yeah. oh yeah and I mean and there is that there has been writing done on that saying that she she was the martyr to the patriarchy because she she kicked back yeah but I think what we're getting on to now and this is something we'll get even further on to is maybe she wasn't a martyr or a saint maybe she was just a teenage girl mm. So we move to the final scene of uh, part 17, which is Cooper leading Laura through the woods towards Jackrabbit's palace. Um, the lighting here is really interesting. He looks really, really young. The sounds of the woods um, is, is sitting there in the background. She's kind of being led quite happily, it seems. She seems to be okay with this situation because um, she's quite open to that side of her existence, dreams and that sort of thing. But then the sound becomes replaced with the sounds of crickets from the beginning of yeah. part one. Or what if, I'm not quite sure. Part one termites? and part eight. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, and then we hear the sounds of terror screaming in fire and her hand disappears from Cooper's and she vanishes mm. and Cooper's alone in the woods. Then we get a long sustained shot of the empty woods and no, there's no sounds of Laura. The, woods, the sound of the woods return to, the sound, to cover the soundtrack. You can't rewrite trauma. Yeah. You can't do it. As much as Cooper and the audience it. want to. It's not going to happen. No. Yeah. no. no. And to musically back this theory up, we then get a nice shot of uh, the world spins by Julie Cruz singing at the Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah, and then, then I lost it. Wow. <laughs> then I completely yeah. lost it. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was, because that was one of the three things that I wanted to happen in mm. these last two episodes. I wanted a Julie Cruz performance and... She delivered. She delivered. And that's the same song she sings at the end of the episode with Maddie... Palmer dies, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah. still possibly the greatest moment of television ever in the and entire history. And the most history. traumatic moment of well, television. Well, and that's why. Yeah. It, is, it is so, so powerful and mm. overwhelming. And that song is, is beautiful. And to play that song again <gasps> now and yeah. as you see Julie Cruz there as a self-performer, um, mm. oh, it, br- it broke my little fanboy heart. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I would have, I could have done with another minute or two of that, to be honest. Yeah, mm. I, yeah, exactly. Because that chorus is just the greatest thing mm-hmm. yeah. I think Lynch ever wrote music. Yeah, I, I love the fact that when the credits started scrolling, it actually like paused at a moment so that you could see full frame again her yeah. just delivering a particular line, and then it began again. The coda of that song is is mm. extraordinary. It um, you know, it, it's a song that it finishes and it's still with you. I think it's the album that that's on. It's the last song on that yeah, album as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And credits roll in memory of Jack Nance. Oh. In case we weren't already falling enough, yeah, hard yeah. enough yeah. to be reminded yeah. that Jack's no longer with us. I know. Oh, he, so many emotions. He died way. Yeah, he yeah. had a tragic story, didn't he? He really yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that we get a throwback to that particular episode of Maddie dying because that's one of the times where we get the roadhouse occupying spirits as well as locals. Yeah, and that, that extraordinary thing where the people in the roadhouse just kind of know what's happened. Yes. All, all those yeah. glances between these characters and this kind of collective sorrow and grief. Yeah, um, the communication without words. <laughs> I'm going to have trouble talking for a moment now. Oh, but, yeah, it, it, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that episode did... It was one of the highlights of the series, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you very much for making it to the end of our discussion of Part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return. You can get in touch with us at TP Season 3 on Twitter or Twin Peaks Season 3 Podcast on Facebook. 
we'll be back in a couple of days with our discussion of part 18 and the interview with Sabrina Sutherland will be up then as well. Thank you for your patience. So I spied Mr C with my own mince pies, readied my dukes, and then I clobbered him on right in the melon. Stupid twat.